This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Michelle. We are back for our final episode of season three. The finale. Yes, it's a banger, an absolute banger. And what a season it's been, Michelle. It has been a a season full of um, metallurgy, Merkin 9 to 5 and... Motorhomes. Motorhomes. Dave Redette. We've talked about Moonshine Mary. We've even mentioned Catherine McCauley. And the real McCoy. And Nikki Tershwell helping us with some movement at the very start. What a mm. season, Michelle. I'm actually very well, proud of us, please. It's, it's been big. It's been big, hasn't it? Bigger than the previous two seasons together, I'd say. And um, I'm just going to jump in nice and quick there, Michelle, before we begin this episode, which Go is ahead. another exciting one. And I heard maybe we might have a special guest star joining us for just a moment of this one. But before we get there, I just want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we live, work and breathe. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to the local Indigenous elders past, present and emerging and recognise the strengths, resilience and capacity of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We are presenting this podcast from Nambour on the Sunshine Coast, uh, which is home to the traditional Gubby Gubby or Cubby Cubby people. That's right. And we would like to um, extend our respect to elders past, present and emerging from those people. Certainly a beautiful place. And today we're going to be chatting a little bit about all things beauty, aren't we? Let's go there. Let's do some makeup. (gasps) Dear Valued Listener, look, we did go highbrow this season, didn't we? We did. We We went highbrow, but today, my loves, we are going to get our foundation out, a bit of lippy. We're bringing it back to the streets. We're bringing sexy back. back. We are bringing sexy back. We are going to talk about all things makeup. And Michelle and I are really excited because this is probably the episode of the season where we just went, you know what, girls just want to have fun. Mm-mm, let's put some rouge on and lippy and Bit of get gloss. out there. Yeah. So I'm going to start my go little discussion it. of makeup because, Michelle, I wanted to go back to where it started and where it started so far as we know because – I'm sure it actually went back a lot further than that. I also want to mention that the discussion about the, the origins of makeup that I'm going to be presenting are of a singular culture um, and that we uh, obviously cannot look at cultures all across the world, particularly those that we are not a part of and explore their etymology of makeup. So instead, I'm going back to the European and African. Well, back that to where of, it all began. Back to where it all began, but that African kind of flies in the face of what I just said. But anyway, you get me, people. It's back to what today's modern makeup makeup where it sort of came from, Mm -hmm. so far as we know. So, Michelle, um, it's not going to be a surprise to you to hear that for generations, makeup has been seen as a girls-only enterprise, but it wasn't always that way, Michelle. For millennia, stretching back from 4000 BCE, between 4000 and 5000 BCE, through all the way through to the 18th century... That's a minute. Goodness, that's a long time. That's a long time. BCE being before common era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Men traditionally use makeup in a myriad of ways. And in fact, Michelle, it wasn't until the mid-1800s that makeup was relegated to one of the gender spectrum. And at the time, it was uh, Queen Victoria I of Great Britain who deemed cosmetics vulgar, and the view was then immediately corroborated by the Church of England. Ah, so you only wore makeup if you were a painted harlot? 
Well, we've talked so much about Penny Beckett's and Hawes. Yeah, Hawes have had a, a farewell, a fair whack of a go on yeah. this uh, season, definitely. We love a whore. But isn't it interesting that, you know, once the monarchy, and I love how we were throwing back to our own episodes, Catherine McCauley rings a bell here, but as soon as the monarchy said something, the, the church went, oh, yes, yes. Mm, 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 and mm. That, was bef- that was when, you know, we were living in that absolutism phase, right? I'm quite Where, sure that the white-faced Pope was not at all... Powdered though. Mm. So, well, anyway, during the Victorian era, makeup was considered an abomination by the Crown and the Church, which created a strong widespread association between makeup, vanity, femininity, and the devil's work. Oh, well, there you go. Rounded that circle, didn't we? Squared that circle. Uh, religious values obviously continued to permeate culture around the 18th, 19th century and oh, all around the world. And so mainstream definitions of masculinity begin to narrow. And during the 20th century, makeup has now been seen as a girl's only pursuit, unless we uh, talk about RuPaul, which we will, or you will, a little bit down the track. Mm. But let's go back to the 4-5000 BCE and, and, and sort of see what makeup was back then and why it was introduced. So as far back as we can go, makeup originated in Egypt and it played a big role. So as far back then, um, men used black pigment to create elaborate cat designs on their eyes. Ah, Um, Carmen's sarcophagus wearing the beautiful cat's eyes. That's it. So as, as you know, and I'm probably going to get the words a little bit mumbled here, but, you know, the cat was considered uh, oh, royalty. Sacred, absolutely. Sacred, royalty, you mm. know, part of part of the system. So the men were the ones that actually started to use this black pigment to create the eye designs on their own faces. Mm-hmm. So not just to look more attractive, but to also celebrate the power importance of the cat. Mm. Uh, to mimic a god. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So in a, in a few millennia later, coal eyeliner, green malachite eyeshadow and lip and cheek stains made from red oak were also extremely popular amongst men. The purpose is not what it was today, to look more attractive. It was instead believed to evoke the gods of Horus and Ra. So actually what you just said about the cats being godlike is true. Because I'm imagining that, you know, they used to do these elaborate eye designs. Yeah, exactly. the eye of Horus is, yeah. Because they weren't to make yourself look like a hottie matotty and then go out on a Friday night and catch one. It was to align yourself with the deity. I'm looking deities. like a cat. I'm clearly in charge here. They also were used to ward off harmful illnesses, but in a spiritual way. So I look like a god, therefore I won't, you know, I won't get gangrene in the finger. You scare that, you scare the frostbite out. Right. <laughs> um, and dramatic eyeliner was customarily worn to communicate also wealth and status, but that began a bit later. The other thing that's really interesting that I delved upon when looking at uh, the history of makeup in ancient Egypt was that taking care of the body in terms of cleanliness was one of the highest and most important routines. So of, in life, in bathing, you mean? In bathing. Right, so okay. it was not reserved just for the upper class. Um, as being unkempt was not approved by any Egyptian circle. So could you not go into certain places when you weren't clean? Is that Yes. And that applied to men as well as women? Yes, Everybody. And it didn't matter what your socioeconomic class was. So the lower social class was given permission to bathe in rivers and canals, obviously, whereas the wealthier Egyptian had access to private baths and showers, which is where the emergence of scented natron soap was a standard hygiene product. Okay. And natron soap, in a way, um, is related to makeup. And based on animal fat? 
Yes. Right. The highest hygiene requirement or obviously re- reserved for the priesthood, but everybody in society needed to adhere to certain norms to enter any temple, any royal space. So and sort of a minimum standard of cleanliness. Absolute minimum standard. And even general households, you know, people would, like if you rocked up at the door and it was day four without a wash, people would close their door immediately to you. <laughs> you got dirty scabby knees, you can't come in, go and have a wash. So they had drain. In well, Egypt? They had, well, if you were bathed in a river, you, well, you, you're not so you're concerned. You're relying on nature there, that's right. No, they didn't have drainage insofar as they had people that would empty the bath after you were done. Right, okay, gotcha. You know? The same people probably who were feeding you grapes. The- yes, and the same people who they themselves went and bathed in the river. Or maybe they had the bath water after you'd finished with it. Well, it's still a clean. <laughs> I'm not going there. That's a whole nother podcast. Mm. But, you know, bathing every day also back then was a safety precaution. You want to get the dirt off you. You want to get yeah, disinfect they, yourself. Yeah, they understood even as far back then that dirt and uncleanness invited disease and virus and illness. You know, things like uh, shaving the skin and the hair from the, mm. sorry, the hair from the skin was to protect from lice. Applying creams to protect skin from the scorching sun were part of a daily routine for all Egyptians. And again, we're on the African continent here, so we know that in summer there, you know, she cooking. You put an egg on the ground, sunny side up, mate. That's right. And I wonder what Brazilian would be called in Egypt, maybe an Egyptian. Listeners, I'm just going to let Michelle laugh at her own joke for a moment. I wish you could have seen my. I wish you could have seen my face in response to that one. That was off script. (laughs) (laughs) So, a a typical Egyptian vanity when we're going back to makeup consisted of eye paint, face paint, oils, various creams, all made of solid fats. Because obviously, back then, maybe she wasn't born with it. Maybe we'll cut the pick up. (laughs) Um. I'm staying on track, Michelle. So, yeah, there's um, quite a lot of uh, historians that have noted um, the compositions of different makeup that has been found from that era it was um, malachite and galena. I'm probably pronouncing galena wrong. It could be gelena or galena. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the most prevailing eye paints in Egypt. Malachite, if you don't know, is the oldest form of paint made out of green or copper. And it goes back as far as 5000 BCE. So that's the beautiful green colours in the Egyptian paintings yes. of the sarcophagi. And the, you know, the headpieces yeah. they used to wear, that was always malachite because it's almost shimmery. Yes. Because it yeah. has the minerals in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Then they also used a lot of the galena, or I'm going to say gelena, and coal, which was made out of a dark grey ore, which became very popular from the late pre-dynastic periods around 3000 BC. Red pigment was found in the graves on pallets and made out of naturally occurring red ochre. And the oils and fats were essential to the cosmetic ritual as Egyptians needed to protect their skin, as we said before, from the dry climate. And um, interestingly enough, in modern day Nubia, Sudan and other parts of Africa, these same oils are used daily to hydrate the skin. Now, this word I'm going to get wrong. I got it wrong the other day and you, co- you corrected me. Unguents. Unguent is correct. Oh, did I get it right? Yeah. How did I say it last time? Ungent. Unguents or ointments were made out of animal fat mixed with water and resin gum. And sometimes, and let this sink in, Michelle, sometimes they were perfumed by soaking aromatic plants so the smell would transfer. But that was rare. Let me just tell you that again. They were made out of animal fat mixed with water and resin gum. Mm -hmm. Now, dear valued listener, the smell. The odour. 
the smell of caking that on your face for a Friday mm, night out trying to catch one. Like a, like an you smelt like a like a dirty lamb leg or a pig's ass. You know when you just killed the latest pig. Oh, mum's fresh tonight. <laughs> the fresh unwound on. I'm putting my frock on and heading out. Give me my malachite and putting mm. it on my eyes. Another really interesting fact about the Egyptians was that they actually, over time, over about 2,000 years, started to realise the use of uh, natural plants and how to incorporate them into their makeup. So things like um, the oil of bitter almonds, cardamoms, honey, wine and turpentine resin all found their way into the makeup process that the Egyptians used for various different reasons. But the progress that they made in terms of ingredient over that amount of time was huge. Yeah. In other words, makeup to the men and to the women, but was mainly the men of Egypt. It was really important and a big practice in daily life. Well, it would have been um, kind of connected with the removal of rock from the yeah. earth that yeah. they were doing that to build great big pyramids. Yep. So we can pull out some of the um, ore to stick on our faces as well. They used a lot of makeup as well for medical applications. So yeah. through this progress of makeup and natural plant ingredient, they started to realise it helped with cuts and abrasions, you know, a bit of a scab, like you can imagine the advertising at the time, scab today, gone tomorrow, <laughs> you know, or things like things like that. Unguents are us. Unguents are us. D-Value, listen, Michelle is titillating herself today. She's off script. It's like she's had a bottle of wine. Um, and obviously, Michelle, there was also a big religious association. So the more religious you were, the more makeup you wore. Yeah, and it's not a surprise that the original design of the eye was completely as a result of the connection with the God and the yeah. God-like nature of the eye. And the, and the replicas that was then done on people yeah. and walls and art, you know, and use, the use of malachite and ore for all of that went through, yeah. went, went forward. But lastly, the most exhaustive utilisation of cosmetics with the ancient Egyptians wasn't actually just for daily life. The, the most use of it in terms of what we've found now historically was that it, you were buried with it. So afterlife to the Egyptians was as important and as valid as life. So the... And they were taken, they, they thought they were going to be taken holistically. Their, their entire body, didn't they? Yes. Yep, okay. Yes. So they had very spiritual beliefs about what happens to the to the body and to the spirit and the soul after you pass. Well, the cleanliness and the embalming is connected with the cleanliness of the body during life. Yep. And the ornamentation of the corpse is fascinating, isn't it? So is that what you're saying? That the yeah, corpse not is- so much the ornamentation of the corpse. I mean, yes, the corpse had a, a fresh a fresh paint on it and a set of eyelids, or eyelashes. Off. You know, it looked, as it rotted, it certainly looked pretty. I mean, did it though? But it wasn't just that. Um, beside the body, they would put different makeups and different creams and ointments. Oh, in jars around Yeah, it. Oh. in jars and palettes because they believed that this spirit could go, I'll have me some of that ochre as, as I, I float off. I just love the idea of people getting to the, the gates of heaven and going, do you have your lippy on you? If you mm. don't have your lippy on you, you're not getting in. Well, they, they just believed it so emphatically that yeah. they thought, we're going to give you the gift of a fresh 
fresh face when you arrive at wherever it is that we've decided that you arrive at, whichever God's door. And the most amount of makeup was found in graves than not. So in other words, in terms of daily life, yes, it was important and used, but it was not as found as it was in the graves. So in the oh, ritual... Oh, so not just in, found more in graves than, say, in a... Um, a household. A bed chamber. Yep, mm. absolutely. Which tells us that the ritual involved in death um, and the afterlife over there was almost probably more powerful and important than life. And the beauty was obviously a very mm. important way of demonstrating religiosity or and status, belief. wealth, mm. all of it. And the one thing, Michelle, that came off the backhand of that was that within five, I think it was about three to 500 years, graves started getting robbed. Yeah. Not just for the jewellery, but for the makeup. Mm, right. You know, you'd have to peel off the eyelids off old Irma as her eyeballs weren't there anymore. She didn't know. And you'd whack them straight on yourself and waltz out of the cemetery going, I feel like a new girl. Yeah, I think I'd prefer to get my um, eyeshadow from Chemist Warehouse somehow. Yep. So that's kind of the ancient Egypt makeup. I'm just going to give you two, two more little nuggies. Romans. So if we fast forward now to the first century AD, when mm. Roman men were known to apply red pigment to their cheeks to lighten their skin with powder, it was not uncommon for the Roman men to paint their nails using a stomach-turning elixir of pig fat and blood. Mm. Yuck. All the vegetarians out there just turned off. Uh, and Roman men also painted their heads to camouflage bald spots. <laughs> um, and the last little one that I'll leave you with is Elizabethan uh, England. So we've moved into Queen Elizabeth I rule. She, at the time, makeup was wildly popular among men, more so than women, mm-hmm. particularly for the ghost-powdered skin. Yes, yeah, yeah. So this, this face makeup that they used back then was dangerously made with lead, pure lead. Setting them crazy then. Which often caused serious health problems, including uh, madness, which is interesting because it was always also around the time of the rise of syphilis, which was also the madness disease. People were going crazy because of... Yeah, you didn't wear a franger, you got a bit of sif, but then you also pounded on some foundation that was made out of pure lead... And At least took- you can blame it on that for your family. Like, it's definitely not syphilis. It's just madness from the makeup, not madness. I mean, from the they're a hop, skip, and a jump from each other. Let's keep it real. But uh, quite a high percentage of these men in the Elizabethan period died. Because not of the syphilis, but of the. Of the lead they pounded mm. onto their faces. Oh, it's sad. It sad. makes you wonder, Michelle. It, it, you know, it asks the question, doesn't it? it what question you wonder. does it ask? Well, what's it all for? Oh, that's a question I ask myself pretty regularly. I don't think it's all for dripping ourselves with bits of pig fat and oh god so look that's a little bit of history for you michelle i know it's a bit of a snapshot but interesting that i found ultimately what i wanted to share was that makeup in its origin was a for men and b for the afterlife yeah well look the gender the connection between makeup and gender is one that's been waxing and waning throughout history so if, if, if we look at after the the Elizabethan era and look at the Renaissance when or beauty ideals were defined by the painters of the time mm-hmm. and the people who were depicted in the paintings were people of great wealth and who were of means and were able were able to do themselves up beautifully and within the confines of what was a pretty narrow definition of what was beautiful. The access to paints and powders and unguents wasn't all that extensive within the society until about the 1920s when you've got 
a whole new entertainment medium in film create film stars, create the famous people who were launching brands like Revlon, for example, um, right. Max Factor, I should say. Max Factor was the big 1920s example of cosmetic house that was huge, was created to be huge by the fact that it was, you know, connected to Hollywood. The, and fl- Hollywood the and flickers. Yeah. You can then chart the the use of makeup on the faces of starlets like Hepburn and Munro, Mansfield, etc., and the, that classic kiss curl beauty that was really right through until the 1950s when there's really a massive change. So at the 1950s, you've still got women confined to homes. You've got women being influenced by a lot more marketing. Marketing is now something that we're seeing every day in magazines and that marketing is telling us a few things. It's telling us that there's something wrong with us and then it's telling us that it's got the things that we can fix our problems with. I'm going to jump in. Mm. We'll, we can debate this. Was it telling us that we weren't, there was something wrong with us or was it telling us that we could do better? No, for women it was telling them that there was something wrong with them. So women were told they were fat, they were ugly, they were smelly. Overtly? Yes. So I've got amazing examples in 1950s magazines in particular, Women's Weekly and Women's, Women's Day, sorry, in Australia, started off a daily magazine and then went weekly. And on each page pretty much... There's a reminder of two things. You're fat and you're ugly, fat and you're ugly, fat and you're ugly, fat and you're ugly. And we tell you this by showing you photos of what we tell you is beautiful. So beauty is in the 1950s to 1960s, the cone-shaped bras, the very landscaped kind of makeup, lots and lots of makeup that's performative and representative of the perfect whatever, the perfect housewife, the perfect whore. So women especially through that period of history, create industries. Max Factor, Rubenstein, Lauder, none of those brands would be successful if they hadn't told women that they needed something that up to then they didn't need. And Mm. you don't ever need an aesthetic improvement. You need something like sunscreen. So the, the development of the idea of makeup makes a lot of sense in Egypt because of its... Practicality. Protectical, protective Mm, um, uh, qualities. So you've got that, you've got there there from the 1950s through to the 1960s, you've got this beauty ideal that is very much around stars, stars who are famous and who can make brands. So, and make things like the taglines of L'Oreal and Maybelline. L'Oreal, you're worth it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's what? Maybelline. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Mm, You got that. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. So um, one of the leading lights in the cosmetics industry at this time, around the early, um, around the 30s and 40s, is Helena Rubinstein. Helena Rubinstein set up her first salon in Melbourne. She learned how to make soap here. She was married to the bloke who published the D.H. 
Lawrence novel Lady Chatterley's Lover. So they were, I would imagine, extraordinarily interesting couple. And, uh, and so connected. You can imagine so connected. You can imagine dinner conversations, one saying, look, I've written this book that's, you know, about a lover, a woman that takes a lover, and, and the other one goes, well, I'm developing makeup that she should wear. Exactly. That's In, right. Interesting Aren't we the power couple? Mm. And fascinatingly, at the time that Rubenstein was making her name, she made it on the back of science. She created an understanding in the marketplace that science and scientific concepts were a good thing. They were good, they're good for your face, they're good for your skin. This is science, this is scientifically underpinned. And still, marketing around cosmetics, shampoos, etc., is is not regulated much no. globally. So you can pretty much claim anything, and they do, as you know. So, for example, wrinkle cream never actually works, but well, it tells you it works. No, but what it does do is will, you know, say, now contains pesticides and vitamin C and all these things which are naturally occurring in the skin but do decrease occurrence over time. Yes. So it's You're a- much better off putting it in, though, I think, with ingested collagens and lots of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that doesn't sell lots of... Um, tubs of cream. So the late 20th century really saw the massive growth of big brands like Estee Lauder and uh, Revlon. L'Oreal, they were brands that that were back then and still are synonymous with the accepted beauty ideal. So for example, in the 1970s, skinny eyebrows and a green eye was big. And now You've got lots of coal under eyes and almost back really to the cat's eye look. The 21st century is fascinating because everything's up for review insofar as the influences on our decisions about what to wear and what to buy very much are more fragmented and decrystallised or decoupled. So we used to look to a magazine and say, well, there are a couple of examples of what beauty is like in that magazine, so I'll follow those. But now I might be connected with a particular type of music and I might be interested in a particular type of fashion and therefore I might choose to meld those two things and put a bit of makeup on and call myself a goth or call myself punk. So I, I can further define my identity outwardly with the use of makeup and I can maybe tie myself to an identity group Mm. And now with social media and the access to information from across the world, we have access to lots of different types of ideas of what beauty might be. It's true. And men now are much more encouraged than they were even 10 years ago to consider using beauty products. So things like skin cleansers have been around, you know, for maybe 10 to 20 years it's been prevalent in the marketplace, things like links and so on. But now there's a real acceptance that it might be okay to put a bit of foundation on or a bit of eyeliner in particular. Yes, and and it's very cultural. We have to pay attention to the cultural norms of that. I lived in Asia for a long time Mm -hmm. and this was a lot, this was 20 plus years ago and it was absolutely normal practice for both males and females encouraged to wear skin lightening um, foundations and creams. Right, okay. Oh, goodness. And it did not speak to sexuality or gender in any way, shape or form. It was encouraged due to to the lightening of the skin. It certainly didn't... Yeah, the pursuit of the European idea. It, well, the grass is greener moment, yeah, you know, which yeah. is ironic because then on the other side they've got the bronzers. Yeah, yeah, we must be spending as much money as they spend on whiteners. We're spending yeah. it on fake tans so, and bronzers. So that point that you make, whilst very true and pertinent, is also uh, restricted to cultural... Absolutely. It's a really important point and it's um, one of the wonderful things about the internet 
has been the cultural sharing that's able to happen and the fact that you might have a real niche interest. Let's say you're a comic-conning furry and you can connect up with a group of people who also like to have yeah. their, their makeup done a certain way on the other side of the, the world. So where's it all going from where we are at here right now today? The modification of the face has gone to the point where we now have facial tattooing is pretty standard. We've certainly got um, collagen and other implants as yeah. standard. So we've gotten to the point where we want to be wearing our makeup all the time. And some of my sisters-in-law who've had their eyebrows done, if they don't have any other makeup on, it's a real shock. The The idea of, of, of a facial tattoo is that it's meant to be joined up with a whole heap of other makeup. So the pressure to continue to put makeup on once you've modified your face a little bit is, you know, it's, it's self-perpetuating. It's compounded. Yeah. And it's happening really young. So people who are just over their 16th or 18th birthday are going in to have things like lip fillers done. And once you've had Botox and fillers, my understanding is that you don't really get the elasticity back. Once the, once the collagen... Does its job. Uh, what's the word? Bleeds away. You know, runs out eventually. They just um, get more. Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? Do you have to? Yes. Yeah. That's shit. Well, that's part of the – that's business. Exactly. And that's really what beauty is all about. Yeah, the it's a beauty business. beauty industry. Absolutely. And we have to remember that because unlike with the Egyptians, when you started bringing it up to, you know, the uh, 19th and 20th mm. century, it, talking about the rise of makeup in the world of moving picture, it became a commodity. Yes. All of a sudden, because we were now looking at moving images of people on a screen and not just hear their words, but we look at their faces, their hairstyles, their clothes, the things on the, the props, you know, the set, all of a sudden, all of that can become a commodity. And it's a heightened reality that sold to us in little bits, isn't it? So are you, you're selling me my heightened reality of yeah. wanting to be like Marilyn in a little jar of cream. Of, yeah, of Revlon. And yeah. let's keep it real, it is still very much happening today with yes. reality TV yes. and with the rise of the influencer. And this is another throwback to another episode, but, you know, you look at TikTok now mm. or, or any of the social media apps that allow you to do video or, or even not video, just photographic content, and half of them are now selling a product. You can modify yourself online now, can't you? So you, even the way that you appear in real time on Zoom can be slightly modified so you, you're not wearing makeup but it can appear that you are. So I'll tell a secret. I had an app quite a few years ago, I'm going to say around eight years ago, that was called More Beauté. Mm. More Beauté. And you'd take a photo of your face and then it gave you... 25 filters to choose from. And it was funny because at the time, not that I did it because I felt insecure, but it really did make you look like you'd been touched up by a pro, right? Mm, like the mm. the effect that it put on the skin, the eyes, the colour, blah, blah. And, and I used to post pictures thinking that that was au naturel, that my friends and my world who would look at that would go, oh, just doesn't he look great? And it was years later, a good friend of mine went, are you using more beauté? Because that's not you. That was jarring, Michelle. It would have been. It would have been. And they're very, very um, commonly used. The fil- the idea of a filter is just accepted now. It's mm. just that there's almost an assumption that anything that we see in a photograph has been doctored in some way. It makes a lie of the idea that photo never lies. What's your relationship with makeup, Michelle? My relationship is one that's filled with fun and excitement and joy. I've always been... I've always used makeup in the pursuits of my life that I enjoy. So whether it's 
in my enjoyment of music and my connection with a subculture in music or whether it's my connection with theatre and my my performance is so much a, around what, what how I paint my face before I walk on the stage. Mm. My connection continues to be one that's playful and I like to muck around a bit with the current trend and focus more on what I know works on my nearly 50-year-old face that I've been carting around with me now for nearly 50 years. Mm. The idea of being able to go outside of what you're told is mm. acceptable. Love it. And playing. Playful. How about yourself? I don't really have a relationship with makeup. I use moisturisers and soap, mm-hmm. um, but I don't – I've never – I think when I was younger you were talking earlier about identity and – punk and music and all of that kind of coalescing into one identifiable external presentation. I think when I was young, I used to paint my nails when I was in my early twenties, but not Mm -hmm. like I used to paint them, but it was black or like blue, you know, masculine quote unquote colors. And I do believe there was a time where I used eyeliner. Is that this one? Eyeliner? Uh, That's um, uh, mascara. Mascara. (laughs) See? Yes. (laughs) They're the lashes. I used mascara and then again, I, but I always tried, like I didn't want to tell the world, I just did it. And then one day I was in a spa with some friends and forgot that I had mascara on. Oh, oh, okay. And my started to raccoon yeah. and they all looked at me and went, are you wearing mascara? And I just fled. Oh. I fled. Speaking of fled, devalued listener Michelle's had to go. All of a sudden something's happened and she's had to go. But um, in whilst someone new who I believe has a very... Uh, oh, she's stomping her way here, and she's got. Hello, the- Matthew. Hi, Cor- it's Coral, isn't it's Coral, it? Coral, Coral Bleach. How are you? I'm, I'm good, Coral. Welcome to Eminem. Um, we're talking about makeup today, Coral. What's, mm. uh, what's your opinion or, or um, interaction with makeup? Well, I'm on my road show at the moment, Matthew. I've got my new colour palette out. I've decided that I'm going into. I've, 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 I've branched out from my. Uh, Masoy candles, yes, yes, and I've decided I'm going to go with the similar similar scent profile. Okay. Uh, so I've got a bit of a bit of perfume, I've got a bit of rouge, and a little bit of eyeshadow. And Coral, would you leave the house on a daily basis without makeup? God no, Matthew. You should see me in the morning. It takes three hours for this to leave the house. Three hours. Yes, Coral. three hours and four coffees. Oh, you must be getting up early. Yes, and I'm bouncing about a bit too. I've got to say. Yes, yeah. No, look, I'm I'm a, I'm a big supporter of makeup. I'm a big supporter of wearing of makeup, and I'm a big supporter of my new palette. Your new palette. Well, we'll um we'll put a link to that. Thanks. Have you got a palette for my palette? What do you think, Coral, about men wearing makeup? Oh no, I can't be in that at all, Matthew. I'm um, no, no, no. Why? Because it's only for ladies. Okay. And I'm a lady, you can tell, can't you? Coral, you're a gorgeous lady. But why couldn't you release a palette for men? Because I I think men are smelly, hairy, and I've been hurt by them. Oh. Mm. Oh, Coral, well, that's a bit Indeed, indeed, indeed. The rouge in my new palette is called Bruise. Oh, Mm. so it's a nice purple. Yes, yes. Okay, Coral. We, I don't know if we need to touch on that, but I do think maybe we should open up our minds to consider that any gender could wear makeup, maybe. No, Matthew, I won't be in that. And if, if you're going to ask me to be in that, you really shouldn't have invited me onto your podcast. Well, I don't know if we invited you. The door opened when Michelle left and you just happened to be walking past. Well, look, I might need to go, I might need to go again, actually. I've got to, got to go and organise my own, my own marketing. If I can't do it here, 
I'm I'll sorry. do it elsewhere. I apologise. Can I take a muffin? You can take a muffin. Thank you, Matthew. I apologise that I've upset you, but really, Coral, now I'm going to go home and put makeup on. Oh, there you go, out the door. Bye. Me and my bruise are going now. Michelle. What? Who was that? It was Coral Bleach. She's got some. Oh, is that the smell? She's got some strong views on makeup, but she has released a new palette, and the latest colour sensation is Bruise. Oh God, she sounds a bit astringent to me. You should have seen the hair on it. Asshole! She actually looked like she had a wig on back to front. <laughs> Michelle, this has been a delight as always. Thank you for having a fun, irreverent episode with me around makeup and for us to get playful again. Yeah, I think we should do it. I think we should um, we should maybe have a little a little play around with makeup. Maybe we could do some performing in makeup. Uh, maybe I tell you what, if we get to here, we go. This is the marketing and Matthew coming out, and I'm being shameless about it. Perhaps if we get to. Um, I don't know how to do this. Maybe like 50 to 75 followers on our Instagram page. I'll let you pound my face and I'll put a picture of me with full makeup on. Oh, now, I'm, dear valued listener, I'm a fan of this idea. If you don't want that, then don't, don't like. Yeah. But if you do want to see me mug all painted up in the shade of bruise, then do subscribe. Well, we'd like to thank you guys for following us on our amazing season three journey. As always, we've loved, um, you know, discussing all things M. We are constantly grateful and inspired by each other and you guys and the letter M. It's been magnificent, hasn't it? It's been absolutely magnificent. And until next time, dear valued listener, please follow our Instagram if you want to see my face pounded. Like, like, share and subscribe on Spotify. And um, we're over and out for this season, Michelle. Oh, it's been real. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, listeners. 